0: for a ride there are many stories here like this place like many things here some have become lost but all lost things yearn to be found and all stories long to be told I've searched through my building gathering up stories from every floor from the basement to the ninth story and every floor in between. Stories of choice, of the hopeless, the redeemable and the lost. Stories that will unlock something inside of you and carry you through fear to your future. Get your copy of the Lifts First Anthology on Amazon in print and Kindle. Let's go for a read.
2: <laughs> the lift's first anthology will be available in kindle on november 2nd 2018 and in print by mid november 2018 visit victoriasliftcom forward slash book for more details and updates support the creators of this show by adding it to your own wicked library
1: warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on. It's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead. Try it. You're not gonna like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs>
2: Happy Halloween, and welcome to this very special episode of the Wicked Library. Today we're featuring a story by Owl Going Back, told by Mike Delgadio, Graham Rowett, and Joshua Narcho. As always, today's episode features a custom score by the great Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. This will, by the way, be the last regular episode of the season. We will be back in December for our quarterly anthology episode, and also for our annual Christmas episode. This year, we'll be featuring a story by Aaron Vleck, The Curse of the Yuletide Bride. Until then, enjoy today's story, have a great November, and we'll see you again in December.
1: Hello, kiddies! You know who I am by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time. At the Wicked Library.
3: <laughs> Last Man in Line by Owl Going Back There it is, Kevin Barry said, pointing through the windshield. Matt Dawson felt a chill dance down his spine as he spotted the entrance to the park. Memories of fuzzy black-and-white photographs flashed through his mind. Photographs of prisoners of war, thousands of them, dressed in the tattered remnants of battlefield uniforms, their bodies ravished with malnutrition and disease. Theirs was a hell few could imagine, and fewer still could endure. The official name of the prison was Camp Sumter, but it was best known by the name of the town it was located next to, Andersonville. Matt lifted his foot off the accelerator. Both he and Kevin were students at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Matt was a freshman, Kevin a junior. Inspired by a television series about the Civil War on PBS, they had decided to make the five-hour trip to visit the park. The sign at the front gates read, Andersonville National Historic Site. The word prison had been deliberately left off. Just inside the entrance were the buildings that housed the administration office and visitor center. The rest of the park lay hidden from the road.
4: Don't stop, keep going,
3: Kevin yelled. Startled, Matt stomped on the gas. The little Nissan shot past the entrance and continued south along Georgia State Highway 49.
2: But I thought we were going to the park,
3: Matt said, somewhat confused.
4: Uh, According to the brochures, it closes in an hour. We are going to the park, dummy. We're just going another way.
3: Kevin pulled a piece of typing paper from his back pocket and unfolded it. A map was drawn on the paper, in pencil. He studied the map for a moment, then looked out the window.
4: I got this from a friend of my cousin's who lives in Mason. Can you imagine living in Mason, Georgia, in the middle of the Bible Belt? God, that must be awful. Anyway, he knows a back way into the park.
3: Why? How much
4: does it cost to go in the front way?
3: Matt asked. I don't know. A couple
4: bucks, maybe? Might even be free. Slow down, we're almost there.
3: Matt slowed down. A plowed field lay off to the left. To the right was pastureland and forest. There. Kevin pointed. Matt spotted a narrow dirt road that cut back through the field. He checked for traffic in the rearview mirror, turned his signal on, and pulled off the highway. He had to jerk the steering wheel to the left and then back to the right to avoid several crater-sized potholes. (laughs) Hmm,
4: nice road, he grumbled. Anyway, as I was saying,
3: Kevin continued,
4: The place is probably free to get in, but I hear it's pretty boring. Not much to see but a few statues, a couple of old cannons, and about 16,000 tombstones. Not really worth driving all the way up here, if you know what I mean. But it makes a perfect place for an initiation.
3: Matt slammed on the brakes. The car slid to a stop. He turned and looked at Kevin, who was grinning.
4: What the hell are you talking about? You want to join the fraternity, right? Well, the boys at Phi Kappa Alpha have decided that your initiation into the Sacred Order of Fraternal Brotherhood is to spend a night alone in Andersonville.
3: You are not serious, Matt said.
4: Oh yes, I am. And when was this decided? About 20 minutes after I told them you and I were thinking about coming up here. Imagine, spending the night at Andersonville, where the ghosts of over 12,000 Union soldiers rise from their graves every night, seeking revenge on the Southerners who imprisoned them.
3: Kevin suddenly grew serious.
4: By the way, you don't have any rebel blood in you, do you?
3: No. Matt replied.
4: But this is a joke, isn't it? Spend the night? What about food and clothing? What if I get caught? Everything you need is in the trunk. I loaded up last night while you were watching the game. As for getting caught, my cousin's friend says the park is empty at night, except for an old caretaker, and he doesn't get around much. No guards, no dogs, nothing. After all, what's to guard? It's only a cemetery. Nobody in their right mind would be there at night.
3: Except me, Matt said. Except you. Matt had known Kevin long enough to tell that he wasn't kidding. They had grown up in the same neighborhood, attended the same high school, and now attended the same university. Kevin had recommended Matt to the fraternity president as a possible prospect, an honor not every freshman received. Matt wanted to be a member of Phi Kappa Alpha in the worst way, and if he had to spend a night in a cemetery to become one, then, by God, he'd do it. Truthfully, the thought of spending the night at Andersonville did have a certain morbid appeal to it. He had always been fascinated by ghost stories even as a kid, though he considered himself to be somewhat of a skeptic. Andersonville, like many other Civil War sites, was reputed to be haunted. Who knows, maybe he would see the ghost of a Union soldier walking in the moonlight. Too bad he hadn't brought along his camera.
2: Okay, you've talked me into it,
3: Matt said. Besides,
4: spending the night in Andersonville for an initiation beats the hell out of getting spanked with a wooden paddle.
3: They waited until 7 p.m., one hour after the park closed, before putting their plan into operation. Matt took his car keys out of the ignition, hit the trunk release, and pulled a flashlight from beneath the seat. Kevin opened the trunk and removed a gray sweatshirt and a small backpack. He stuffed the sweatshirt and flashlight into the backpack, being careful not to smash the sandwiches he'd already packed, closed the trunk, and handed the backpack to Matt. Kevin's secret back way into the park was through a tangled growth of trees. There was no trail. Instead, they had to forge their way through a variety of shrubs, vines, and briars. Luckily, they both wore jeans. The brush would have cut their legs to pieces otherwise. They were muddy, drenched in sweat, and covered with mosquito bites by the time they finally reached their destination. After reading the story of the prison, Matt had envisioned the park to be as cheerful as a stockyard. But he was wrong. Andersonville was beautiful 475 acres of gently rolling land stretched before them, dotted with stately oak and magnolia trees, and surrounded by pristine pine forests. Monuments of marble and granite stood like silent sentinels in the fading sunlight, guarding the serenity that enveloped the area. They entered the park at the southeast corner, near part of the earthworks built to ward off an attack by Sherman's army. To the west, a small brick structure marked the site of Providence Spring, A tiny trickle of water had miraculously appeared in August of 1864 after several days of heavy rain. The prisoners claimed the spring's sudden appearance was the result of prayer and divine intervention, and had named it accordingly. The actual prison site only covered 76 and one-half acres. Four cornerstones and a rectangle of white posts denoted where the stockade walls had once stood. Constructed by slave labor, the walls had been built of 20-foot pine logs, sunk 5 feet into the ground. Sentry boxes had been placed along the outside of the wall every 88 feet. Part of the wall and a sentry box had been reconstructed at the southeast corner. The northern gate had also been rebuilt. A rectangle of posts, approximately 18 feet inside the first, showed where the deadline had run. Nothing more than a simple rail fence, the deadline was designed to keep prisoners from approaching the wall. Anyone who dared to cross it would be shot by the guards. A paved road circled the prison site and led toward the cemetery. They followed the road and soon found themselves among row after row of tombstones, like ivory dominoes waiting to be toppled. Of the 16,000 grave markers, 12,912 belonged to prisoners who had died at Andersonville. They had been buried side by side in long trenches, shoulders touching, their bodies covered with crude planks of wood. No coffins had been provided for those unfortunates, and they were often naked, Any useful articles of clothing claimed by the other prisoners. An additional 700 tombstones marked the final resting place for Union soldiers who had died in hospitals, other prisoner-of-war camps, and on the battlefields. The remaining graves belonged to U.S. veterans of other wars. Matt smiled when he spotted the gravestone of a Robert E. Lee Jr., a Tech 4 in the U.S. Army during World War II. He wondered if he was any relation to the old general of the South. Six prisoners had been buried separately from all the others. They were the leaders of the infamous Andersonville Raiders, organized gangs of criminals who preyed upon the prisoners, robbing and murdering them for the few possessions they had. After a reign of terror that lasted for months, the prisoners rose up against the Raiders. The six leaders were given a trial, convicted of their crimes, and hanged. Many of the others were forced to run a gauntlet, They would have explored the rest of the cemetery, but were afraid of getting too close to the administration office where the caretaker resided. Trespassing on federal property was a serious offense. Neither of them wanted to spend the night in a Georgia jail. Instead, they decided to hike back to the prison site.
4: Okay, this is where I leave you, Kevin said. Remember, you can't leave until the sun comes up. After that, you head for the highway. I'll pick you up there.
3: Kevin wished him luck and shook hands. Matt handed him the car keys and watched as Kevin walked back toward the woods. He smiled. At least he wouldn't have to face the mosquitoes and briar bushes again. Matt decided to set up camp in the shadow of the cannon. At one time there had been several field artillery pieces in the park, but the carriages had rotted on them, leaving only the barrels. The one remaining cannon rested on a platform of wooden boards atop the earthworks overlooking the northwest corner of the prison. From where it was located, it would have a clear view of both the prison site and the road to the cemetery. If anyone did come along, he would have plenty of time to hide. He took a seat with his back against the left wheel of the cannon and pulled a peanut butter sandwich and a can of Coke out of his backpack. As he ate, he found himself staring at the prison area, trying to imagine what it was like back then. From his reading, he knew that in 14 months of operation, from February 1864 to April 1865, 40,000 Union soldiers had been held prisoner at Andersonville. Of those, nearly 13,000 died. The prisoners had existed on a tiny amount of cornmeal per day and an occasional piece of salt pork. Fresh water was also scarce. The tiny creek that ran through the center of the prison was fouled with runoff from the latrines and two Confederate camps. Many of the prisoners resorted to digging wells in search of suitable drinking water. All but two of the wells had since been filled for the safety of park visitors. Raised in a comfortable middle-class family, Matt could not imagine living through such an experience and was certain that he would have been one of those who perished. He must have dozed off, for he awoke with a start. Matt glanced at his watch. It was nearly four in the morning. Not only had he dozed, he had slept soundly for hours.
2: Just a couple more hours until sunrise and I'm out of here.
3: Matt turned his attention to the prison site across the road. Everything appeared normal. The four cornerstones, the monuments, and the section of wall glowed softly in the moonlight. But as his eyes adjusted to the darkness, he noticed a peculiar patch of mist covering the ground like a gray blanket, directly over one of the wells. Matt started to dismiss it as ground fog when he realized that it occurred nowhere else, especially in any of the low-lying areas where the fog is most likely to form. He rubbed the sleep from his eyes and looked again. The fog was only over the one well but as he watched, it began to spread, reaching out gray tentacles like a living entity. The fog rolled quivering across the ground, filling the area between the cornerstones. Statues, trees, and markers disappeared as if swallowed, sucked down into the churning mist. He expected it to drift across the road toward him, but the swirling fog stopped at the boundary posts, remaining inside what was once the prison. What the hell? He was dumbstruck, How could fog stop like that if there was nothing to contain it? But stop it did. It had to be a trick. Kevin must have rented a fog machine from someone at Universal Studios and snuck back while he was asleep. But if that was true, where would he plug it in? There were no electrical outlets anywhere. And how could he keep the fog in a certain area? Matt suddenly became aware of how strangely quiet it had become. The crickets and whippoorwills, so voiceful only moments before, had hushed their cries as if someone had lifted a needle from a phonograph. In their place was a soft whistling, a musical sound, like the wind blowing through a hollow reed, but no wind blew. The skin at Matt's temples pulled tight. He cocked his head and listened. The whistling grew louder, changed its pitch, rose and fell. It sounded like a flute or some sort of woodwind instrument. The sound came from the direction of the well. Damn it, it's gotta be Kevin. The whole thing had to be a prank. Kevin and maybe a few of the guys from the fraternity were trying to terrify him, hoping to have a good laugh at his expense. He wasn't sure how they were pulling off the effect with the fog, but there had to be a logical explanation for it. Maybe they were using battery-powered smoke machines and fans.
2: Okay, Kevin, give it up. I'm not scared.
3: Matt yelled. There was no response. No peals of laughter. The only sound was the haunting melody of the flute. Angered, Matt grabbed his flashlight and headed toward the well. Though it still hadn't expanded beyond the perimeter of the old stockade, the fog now reached up into the branches of the trees and smothered the heads of the tallest statues. Determined to call Kevin's bluff, he entered the strange vapor. He'd only gone about twenty feet when he realized he was dealing with something far more sinister than a college prank. The fog was heavy, oppressive. It blocked out the moonlight and filled him with a feeling of intense dread. There was no wind, but it swirled before him like flowing strands of cotton candy. He felt that it watched him, played with him, enticed him to come deeper within its bosom and dared him to do so. Waves of fear washed over him as slender gray tentacles slipped beneath his clothes to caress his trembling flesh. Things moved in the fog, dark shapes, phantoms. He saw them out of the corners of his eyes, but when he turned toward them, they were gone. Once he saw a face peering at him from the depths of the mist. No body, just a face, pale, lifeless, a corpse's face. The face disappeared when he turned to look at it. Matt would have chased after the face, but was terrified of what he might find. All around him he heard whispers and the odor of something dead filled the air, nearly gagging him. He followed the sound of the flute to the well. Matt had seen the well earlier in the day. Most of it had caved in long ago, leaving a hole a little over eight feet deep. But now he wasn't sure how deep the hole was, or what was in it. The fog filled the well, poured out of it, making it look like a cauldron of boiling broth, From the depths of this swirling mist came the ghostly song. He listened carefully, but could not place the tune. Sad. Melancholy. A ballad, perhaps.
2: Kevin? Is that you?
3: He asked hopefully. No answer. Who's there? Again, no answer. Only the sound of the haunting notes of the flute. He was afraid to call out again. His voice sounded suddenly too loud, as though he was in danger of attracting unwanted attention. Kevin, if that's
2: you, I'm going to kick your ass,
3: Matt whispered as he climbed over the picket fence that surrounded the well. He was just about to sit down and lower himself in when something shot out of the well and seized him by the left ankle. Matt cried out. A hand gripped his ankle. The fingers were long and bony, the flesh a leprous gray. He kicked at the hand, trying to break free, but it held on. He started to grab the fence for leverage but the ground gave way beneath his feet and he fell headfirst into the well. He landed on his back at the bottom of the well, dazed but not seriously hurt. His flashlight dropped somewhere in the fall. He lay in darkness so thick that he could not tell if his eyes were open or closed. And somewhere in the darkness was the person who had grabbed him. Matt jumped to his feet and stumbled backward. His back hit the dirt wall. A root scratched his face. He couldn't see, nor could he hear anything other than the pounding of the pulse in his head and his own labored breathing. He expected his assailant to rush at him and raised his hands to ward off the attack. A few minutes passed. Nothing happened. Kevin? Curious, Matt inched forward. He reached the other side of the well. No one was there. He turned to his left and circled the entire hole. Again, no one. Whoever grabbed him had left. Matt found his flashlight, thankful that it still worked. He had just switched it on, the tiny beam of light barely penetrating the mist, when he again heard the flute. The music came from a spot along the wall, a few feet from where he stood.
0: Damn it, there's
2: nobody here.
3: Angered, Matt dug his fingers into the dirt, searching for the source of the music. Kevin must have planted a tape recorder in the well. If so, he was determined to uncover the device and smash the thing to pieces. But it was no tape recorder that his trembling fingers uncovered. It was a tunnel. Holy Holy shit! Matt exclaimed. He'd read about how the prisoners of Andersonville often attempted to escape by tunneling out, though few ever succeeded in getting away. The tunnels were kept hidden from the watchful eyes of the guards by starting them beneath a tent or from a well. Apparently... He had just discovered a bid for freedom that had miraculously survived for over a century. The tunnel's entrance was about three feet above the bottom of the well and a little over two feet in diameter. Matt pulled a few roots out of the way and stuck his flashlight in the opening. The passageway was narrow and straight and ran northeast from the well. He couldn't tell how long it was, for the light only revealed the first twenty feet. Perhaps it would have been best to leave the tunnel alone, but he felt compelled to further explore his find. If he could come up with some type of souvenir, a button off a uniform, a cap pin, something to show for his exploits, he was sure to be accepted into the fraternity. Matt squeezed into the narrow shaft and crawled forward, using his hands and elbows to pull himself along. In the excitement of his discovery, the strange music and the hand that grabbed him were temporarily forgotten. He'd only gone about 30 feet when he came to a place where the tunnel roof had long ago collapsed. A pile of dirt, hardened over the years into one solid clump, nearly blocked the shaft solid. There was little space to maneuver, but Matt managed to break the dirt and push it out of the way. On the other side of the cave-in, he found the souvenir he was looking for. The prisoner had died a horrible death, trapped beneath the ground, buried alive. His bones were all that remained to tell the sad tale, the rusted remains of a canteen half by his side. Matt shined his flashlight forward and saw a second skeleton, and another one in front of that. Altogether, he counted four skeletons, one in front of the other, but there might have been more. After the cave-in, they had been unable to dig themselves out, nor had they been able to open the other end of the tunnel. Matt wondered why their friends had not freed them, or told the Confederate guards of their botched escape attempt. Perhaps the prisoners had become so calloused by death, with nearly a hundred soldiers dying each day, that they figured one grave was as good as another. Or maybe they hadn't wanted the guards to know about the tunnel, for fear of them looking for others. Matt supposed he'd never know the reason, for the answer lay buried with the dead. As he studied the skeletons, Matt again heard the strange melody of the flute. The music was much louder than before, and it came from behind him. He pushed himself up on his elbows and looked back over his left shoulder. At first, he didn't see anything, but shining his light back down the tunnel, Matt saw something crawl into the entrance. He watched in horror as a shadowy shape moved down the tunnel toward him. A blackness greater than that which surrounded it, the shape moved like some unknown beast along the passageway, stopping, pausing to sniff the air only to move on again. Behind the unmanageable shape came the fog. Tendrils of grey slithered like giant anacondas down the tunnel, reaching out to seize him in their crushing grasp. Trapped with nowhere to run, terrified nearly out of his wits, Matt shut his eyes tight as the blackness reached him. He felt it slowly roll over him, sniff him, caress his body like the tongue of some foul beast. His mouth went dry with fear. His bladder emptied. Matt pushed his face into the dirt and trembled like a frightened dog. He heard voices, whispers, moans of pain. He covered his ears but still heard them. The voices spoke to him, called his name. He cried out, begged for them to stop, but they did not heed his pleas. With the voices came intense feelings of emotion helplessness, anger, and despair. They slammed into him like physical blows, threatening to tear his soul apart. Tears rolled freely down his face. Sorrow squeezed his heart until he couldn't breathe. He opened his mouth to gasp for air and tasted dirt. A hand touched his neck, cold and clammy. Another grabbed his leg. Unable to stand it any longer, Matt opened his eyes and screamed, The tunnel was filled with fog, but it was also filled with men, ghosts, grey as the mist itself. They were half-naked and skeleton-thin, dressed in rags, their bodies racked with disease and malnutrition. They labored one behind the other in the tiny shaft, struggling to gain their freedom. As lice crawled in their shaggy hair and beards, and maggots wiggled about in open wounds, they passed handfuls of dirt back from one to the other. They didn't speak, but worked in silence, their faces grim with determination. The prisoner in front of Matt, a boy no more than 13 or 14 years old, shoved a small pile of dirt back toward him. When Matt didn't take it, he turned his head around and looked at him. Tremors of fear passed through Matt as the boy fixed his haunted gaze upon him. He wasn't much more than a child, but his face was old and lined his mouth toothless from scurvy. He stared at Matt for a moment, then pulled something from his pants pocket. A stick, about seven inches long, carefully carved with a pocket knife into a musical instrument. A flute.
2: My God, he's the one. It's his music I heard. He called me. Called me to this very
1: tunnel. But why?
3: Why? He held his flute out and pointed at Matt's flashlight. "'gesturing that he wanted to trade. "'The unspoken words came to Matt's mind.
2: "'He wants my flashlight. "'They've been trapped down here all this time. "'Their spirit's imprisoned. "'They they want to find their way out of darkness.'
3: "'The boy reached back and laid a hand, "'light as a feather, on Matt's wrist. "'He again gestured at the flashlight for a trade. "'Matt cried out and jerked his hand back. "'The boy's face hardened in anger.' He placed a finger against his lips and motioned for Matt to be quiet. Something was wrong. Something was very wrong. Not only could he see, hear, and, God forbid, touch the ghosts, they could also do the same with him. Unbelievable as it seemed, he was somehow existing on the same spiritual plane as the ghosts of Andersonville. When they first appeared, the men in the tunnel were gray as the mist, spectral, almost transparent, but they were rapidly becoming more solid with each passing moment. Matt shuddered to think what would happen when they became real.
0: I gotta get out of here.
3: He shoved the flashlight into the boy's waiting hand, grabbed the flute, and pushed backward. He prayed no one was behind him, for then he would surely be trapped, and would probably suffer the same unfortunate fate as the rest of those in the tunnel. Luckily, no one was. After what seemed like a lifetime of crawling, he reached the end of the tunnel and lowered himself into the well. There was a loud splash as he dropped into water up to his knees.
0: But this well was empty. It has been for years.
3: That might be true, but it now had water in it, and the tree roots that once ran up its side were gone. Also missing was the tree and the fence that surrounded the well. Matt tried three times to climb out of the well and finally made it on the third attempt. He pulled himself up, only to discover that his nightmare was far from over.
2: Oh my God.
3: What had been 26 acres of empty land was now crowded with thousands of makeshift tents. They stretched as far as the eye could see, with no attempt made to establish any kind of order. The tents faded from view into the fog on the left side and butted up against the deadline on the right. Resting in the tents, standing beside them, and walking aimlessly about were thousands of Union prisoners. Like those in the tunnel, the prisoners were as thin as scarecrows and dressed in the ragged remains of uniforms. And, like everything else, they were also a transparent gray, as though they were made out of fog. Matt spun around and was startled to see a wall of squared pine logs towering fifteen feet into the air behind him. He could see the wall but he could also see through it. Between him and the wall was the wooden fence that marked the deadline, no man's land for the prisoners of Andersonville. At the corner of the stockade wall was a sentry box. The face of a young Confederate soldier peered over the wall from the box. He stood there for only a moment, witnessing Andersonville in all of its unholy glory. But in that brief period of time, everything became a little less transparent. A little more solid. There was no time to lose. He had to get out before it was too late. He dared not think what would happen if the prison became solid, became real, while he was still on the inside. With a pounding heart, Matt raced towards the stockade wall. He weaved in between the prisoners as he ran, jumping over those lying in his way. The thought of touching another prisoner made him shudder, and he went out of his way to avoid doing so. By the time he reached the west side of the stockade, he knew that the prisoners could see him. Heads turned to watch him as he raced by. He reached the deadline. The wooden rail felt smooth to the touch, wet from the fog. Matt looked up. The guard in the sentry box watched him. He would only have one chance. Matt ducked under the rail and started across the deadline. The guard shouted for him to halt, raised his rifle, and took aim. Several of the prisoners shouted encouragements to him and angry words at the guard. Dear
0: God, dear God, dear God.
3: A shot rang out. The bullet kicked up dirt by his left heel. From behind him, the prisoners cried out in anger. He reached the stockade wall and pushed against it. The wood wasn't completely solid yet, but it was like rubber and resisted his efforts to pass through it.
2: It's too late. I can't get out. You, Jesus, I'm trapped.
3: Another shot was fired. Matt felt something tug at his sweatshirt and realized a bullet had passed through the fabric just missing his side. A third bullet whizzed by his head. Matt spun around. All the prisoners were on their feet, watching him, cheering for him. He looked along the stockade wall. The guards hurried to reload their rifles. If he ran back across the deadline mingling with the prisoners, he would be safe from the guards' bullets. But Matt knew in his heart that once he stepped back across the deadline he would be trapped in Andersonville forever. He'd rather die first. He pushed himself away from the stockade wall and ran back to the center of the deadline. The guards raised their rifles and took aim. The sight made his knees go weak.
0: Jared,
2: don't look at the guards.
3: With a scream, he turned back around and charged the stockade wall. Arms outstretched before him, he dove headfirst at the log posts. There was a tearing sound as the wall parted and he passed through it. Three shots rang out behind him. Matt hit the ground in a roll and was up and running. He didn't stop until he was a good hundred yards away. Turning around, he marveled at Andersonville as it had been over 100 years ago the stockade, the hospital, the prisoners, and the guards. Everything stood out bright in the moonlight, but as he watched, it began to waver and transform back into mist. The mist lasted a few seconds, and then it too was gone. All that remained were the cornerstones, the boundary markers, and a few statues. The caretaker found him that morning sitting beside the cannon. He probably would have had Matt arrested for trespassing had not the discovery of the tunnel created an even bigger stir. All told, they unearthed nine skeletons from the tunnel. Nine prisoners of war unaccounted for on any of the historic rolls. The park officials also uncovered an item that had them totally baffled. One ever ready flashlight, its batteries long corroded, its lens cracked, was found tightly clutched in the right hand of the skeleton closest to the tunnel's entrance. Matt pulled the flute out of his pocket. For over 130 years, the bodies had remained in the tunnel waiting for someone to come along and discover them. If Matt hadn't been spending the night, if he hadn't seen the fog or heard the eerie music, they would still be down there, their spirits trapped in the darkness. He smiled. For one magic moment, deep in the bowels of the earth, he had transcended time to touch the past. He wondered who the boy was, but doubted if anyone would ever know a nameless child caught up in the horrors of war. No, not a child. There were no children at Andersonville, only men beyond their years. To the other prisoners, the boy, whose Melody Matt would never forget, had been a comrade, a fellow soldier. And to the men in the tunnel, digging for their freedom, he had simply been the last man in line.
2: All right, so today my guest is Owl. Going back, and we just listened to your tale, "Last Man in Line," and I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite stories. I think this might be the first story of yours that I ever read, and and it's kind of like where I was like, "This guy can write." Um, it, it's such a great story. Uh, there's so many cool things about it, and, and I, I first of all just wanted to say thank you so much for letting us do the do the uh, the story for the show because it's one of my favorites. Absolutely.
5: Thank you for using it. I mean, I, it's one of my favorites, too, just because of the fact that I've been to Andersonville and studied the history on it. I was simply blown away. And not too many people know the story that we had a basically a concentration camp here in America. Yeah. So I wanted to do something. First time I ever visited Andersonville, I said, I've got to do a story on this place.
2: Yeah, it's it was a it's a, it's a really dark story. It's it's amazing, you know, just the treatment of the prisoners and. You know, war is hell, obviously, but that's just it blows me away that we can we can do that. And I know that that's a theme you kind of return to again and again in your stories is just kind of the the mistreatment, um, you know, in times of war or by those in power. And I think that's a really powerful message that we we're not supposed to forget, because especially with the political atmosphere, the way it is today, it's really important we don't forget What happens when someone has too much power and people don't pay attention and don't look at the world with kindness as opposed to, you know, just us against them? It's really dangerous.
5: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Civil War era was so horrific in America, and we were so close to getting to that same teetering on the brink situation where it's neighbor against neighbor. I mean, I've seen it lately, the hatred coming out, I said, this is what happened then. And I, I can't imagine living and having to go through that war and you know, the stuff people had to face. And I sure heck hope we don't have to do something like that ever again.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's 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 scary, you know, and, and I think it's it's a double edged sword. I mean, there's so it's so quick to spe- spread disinformation so easy. To influence people, as we saw with, you know, with the Russian hackers and everything, it's so easy to spread that disinformation and to manipulate people. But, you know, you have the other side of that, too, which is it's really hard to get away with things because everybody's always watching. So I I don't know what, you know, there's always a balance there. And it's 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 scary on both sides, I think.
5: It is. I mean, we are living in scary times. I've got a lot of friends who will post stuff. And, you know, somebody will start out with a satire story and you got everybody reposting it as, as reality. I'm like, people read it to the end. Yeah. I said, don't spread something unless you check out the source. Yeah.
2: <laughs> now, I had a question on, on the story is am i remembering correctly that the story is actually mentioned very briefly in in one of your other stories and i want to say that it's it's one of the ones that we've done for for the show before i thought it was uh, sealed with a kiss but i might be mistaken you you
5: are correct uh, you got a great memory i actually worked in the beginning of sealed with a kiss where the the the, the airman from Robbins Air Force base and was on his way to he wanted to go to Andersonville but the place was closed because about a tunnel being found, so right. I like to put those little uh, you know Easter eggs in my different stories to see if people are paying attention. But yeah, <laughs> I did tie a few stories together, and they're, they're pretty much in the same area of Georgia.
2: Yeah, I, I really love that because it's a little tiny detail that like it doesn't detract from the story. It doesn't, if you're only reading one of the stories, it doesn't really detract or add anything. But if you've read both of them, it's a really nice payoff for. You know, someone who pays attention they're like, Oh yeah, that's I remember that. So it the worlds connect. It's 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 really cool. Yeah. Really enjoy it.
5: It's fun. You know, I I spent a lot of time doing I was stationed in robin's Air Force Base in Georgia for a year and I owned a restaurant there for like five years. So I spent a lot of time doing back roads and exploring and you see these little shacks that are on the side of the road and you go inside and they've got cardboard for installation and you know, and they're, <laughs> they're empty, they're abandoned and they all tell a story. It's such a sad story. I always wondered what happened to these people. Cause these little lonely farm sites with the houses raised above the ground. The cooling wind during the summer can get in there. So mm-hmm. they, every one of them was, was inspiration for story ideas.
2: Yeah, it's it's really cool. I mean, and that's one of the things that I really enjoy about, you know, good writers like yourself is the little details that you pay attention to and work the way into the story. It makes a story that has supernatural or, you know, uh, elements that are not grounded in in reality feel more grounded and feel more real because you start with this. Everything is real. There's all these little details that make you buy into it. And before you know it, you're on this wild journey where you're crossing – through space or dimensions or, uh, you know, whatever the case may be.
5: Well, Anderson, I remember going there, and you think it's going to be horrific because if you've read the books or seen the pictures, but it's one of the most beautiful parks I've ever been to, but there's such an odd, eerie quiet to the place. Mm. When you walk around, you know you're on hollow ground. It just feels like the spirits are watching you, but there, and I, a friend of mine, the late uh, Andre Norton, who was a grandmaster in science fiction fantasy, she told me when I was going there that she had an ancestor buried there that nobody had ever visited his grave. So I went there and I took some. I had plastic flowers and I I put them on the grave. And as soon as I placed these flowers, out of nowhere, this butterfly landed on them. Uh-huh. So it was just that, that surreal moment. This butterfly came out of nowhere and landed on these flowers, and I couldn't grab a camera quick enough. But it was just like almost like the spirits were watching, and acknowledged yeah. you're there, and you you know did something for one of the people who had died there.
2: Yeah, it's 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 certain places do have kind of that gravity to them where you can tell. Something has happened there. And I I think that really, you know, when we move through these places and, you know, tremendous events or horrific events happen someplace, it kind of leaves that imprint behind. And, you know, it's definitely something where you can can connect to that that earlier event, that earlier time, which is what is really cool about this story where – you know, it's it, – it, he finds himself kind of crossing through the veil, and the longer he's there, the more grounded in reality it becomes, the more his reality it becomes. Uh And I, I really enjoy stories like that where it's, you know, kind of – you're crossing that threshold. And, you know, a lot of the fairy stories are like that too, where, you know, you're, you're there for too long, you, you get trapped there.
5: Exactly. I and mean, I've always kind of thought of like, you know, people talk about heaven and the other side. I was like, what if heaven's not a, a- – place, a physical place you go to in spiritual form, but more of like a moment in time where you go to your happiest moment. Or what if there's spirits trapped in this, you know, this hellacious moment of time and they're still there, still looking for that way out, but they're such grounded in that moment that it can't escape.
2: Right. Yeah, and, and when they interact with him, I think that's a really cool, really cool scene as well, when they you know he's kind of realizes that he's actually a part of this. Uh, and, and in the, the very end, when you come back and you kind of mention that his flashlight's found there and it's, you know, corroded and obviously has been there for, you know, 100 years or, or whatever the case may be, uh, the, the like little details like that are always fun for me as well, you know, because it's like the undeniable supernatural, you know, it's like, okay, maybe he was, you know, hallucinating. He fell asleep. It was a dream. But when you have those little details like that, it, it kind of brings it back home, which is really cool.
5: Yeah, he's going to know it's real, but nobody's going to believe him. He's going to go back to college and tell the story. Everybody's going to laugh at him. He he doesn't have the evidence, but he saw it. He knows, you yeah. know, he, what he saw is real. He's got the flute still, but yeah you, know, you just picked that up somewhere from a trinket shop down the road, right? But he knows in his heart that he, he just had that moment, surreal moment where he did cross the boundaries. He did go to the twilight zone.
2: Yeah. So what? I, I'm obviously one of the things that we talk about in the show all the time is with the authors is just that writing is hard work and creating a story and and making it work and making it kind of have its own life is something that's really difficult to do. Um, So I'm always curious why an author sticks with a story to go through all that. So what made this story something or one that you really wanted to bring to light one that you wanted to tell?
5: Well, it's kind of like, you know, I see stories in my head. It's almost like a movie. And I wanted to have the story play out. I wanted to know the ending. So when I start, I have a general idea, but I'm kind of like I'm sitting back. Usually in my office is late at night. I'm wired on caffeine to the max. I've got the lights turned off, and it's me and this blank screen. And I'm kind of like telling the characters to entertain me and take me for a ride. So I have no idea a lot of times how the story's going to turn out until I'm done with it. When I do novels, a lot of times I sell them based on an outline. I'll send the outline in and they'll buy the book based on that. And I'll tell them, look, there's no guarantee the book's going to end up this way. I've been <laughs> right. known halfway through to kill off the uh, main characters or have, take a happy ending and turn it into a sad ending. Cause that's how it came out. while I'm sitting here watching and typing it. Yeah. It's like, it's not my fault. Blame the characters. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's one of my favorite aspects of writing. Cause I, I think that I, I write kind of the same way. I'm very visual. Whenever I'm writing, I see the scenes, I see the characters and, Invariably, I, I, can, I can think on, of one time that I started out with an idea and it ended up the way that it was. I'm very frequently finding when I'm going through the story that the characters kind of have their own agendas. And if you listen carefully, they tell you the right way to go. It's when you try to force them to, to, to come to the conclusion that you want them to, that the story always tends to fight you, I think.
5: Exactly. That's like in my novel Breed, which is set in St. Augustine, Florida. I don't describe the creature until the very last chapter, and that's because I never saw it clearly. I finished the last chapter, and it turned out completely different than I thought it would be for the ending of the book. And I went in, I was taking a shower, and while taking a shower, I saw a very vivid description of what this thing looked like. Hmm. I ran back into the office and typed it in, but up (laughs) at that moment, I was very vague about it because I wasn't shown what it looked like.
2: Now I got to tell you, this is a funny scene because I'm I'm very like I, like I said, I'm very visual too. So I see you running out of the shower, just dripping wet, running into the office, just sitting down at the keyboard and typing. That's funny. Yeah,
5: it's, it's <laughs> exactly how it happened, and, and I, I geared the entire book to have a happy romantic ending. And I saw when I was driving home, I saw this horrific way to kill off the, one of the ma- the male lead. And it just, just popped in my head and I started laughing. <laughs> and I said, I've got to use this. Yeah. I sent it in to the to the editor thinking they're going to have a fit because this isn't how the outline went. They never complained because it worked in.
2: Yeah, as long as the story's good and it's entertaining, I think, and it's true. I think that, uh, you know, people will go along with you. So for this particular story, what was the uh, what was the biggest struggle that you had with it? Was there anything that kind of fought you along the way?
1: Did I lose you? I think I may have lost you.
3: Hello there.
5: I hate technology. (laughs) I, th- I, th- I heard that little thing. I said I thought somebody's calling in, and I was like realized I was talking to dead air. I was like, <laughs> oh great.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Uh, I was like, I think I lost him, but I was going to continue going on anyway. And I was like, yeah, you're gone. I lost you.
5: <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I feel like an idiot. I was like, okay, I'm calling. And they're like, wait a minute. And I was like, hello,
2: anybody there? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fun. It's fun. Um, yeah, so, so basically you were, you were telling me that, um, you, you sent the, the outline in and, and you said, you know, it wasn't going to come out the same way and you were afraid the editor was going to be upset, but they were, they were fine with it.
5: They were fine with it. Yeah. And I kind of like a breed, I was trying to push the envelope anyway to see what what I could get away with as far as being shocking. And And I found out I can get away with pretty much anything at that time. So yeah, you know, nobody got upset with the stuff I did and, and people were like, have come up to me since then and said, look, I hated the ending. I hated what you did, but I understand why you did it. And it's probably the best ending. I said, yeah, you know, I had to do it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's always sad whenever, you know, something doesn't of when you lose somebody. It's it's almost like losing a friend when you're invested in a book like that. And you're like, oh, no, Eddie's dead now. Oh, no, I don't like that. But, yeah, the well, story requires... I
5: won't, I won't write down, like, if i got a character named Jack, I won't write down Jack died. Because if I do that in my head, he's dead and I can't continue the story. <laughs> So I'll never do that. I'm very superstitious about it. But also, and speaking of things dying, just about every one of my novels, I either put a dog or a cat in the story, and they never make it to the end. And people ask me, why do that? I say, because I get so much hate mail from killing an animal. I can kill 500 people in a story. Nobody complains. I kill a cat or a dog, I get hate mail. And it's funny because they get more upset about that than anything.
2: Yeah, the the fictional animal that passes away whenever – and I tell you, as an animal lover myself, sometimes I struggle with that in stories whenever it happens. But I'm like, yeah, I get it. It's kind of where the story had to go at this point.
5: <laughs> the worst was I killed a black Labrador in one of my stories. And a buddy of mine called me up and literally bawling. And I forgot his dog had just died. He had a um, black lab. And I forgot to warn him.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's rough.
5: Like, Sorry. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's tough. It is. Um, yeah, the story's always the mistress, though. It tells you where it wants to go. So what was your biggest struggle with, with this story? Was there anything that, that fought you when you were working through this story? And and I guess the more interesting question is how you overcame it.
5: Well, the, the hardest part was to be able to describe Andersonville in enough detail without doing information dump because there's so much about the, about the prison site and, and what happened there that people don't know about. And I could probably just do a book about it real easy, you know, with all the situations. And I wanted to picture the... the they're horrific and describe it without just giving page after page after gory, you know, gory details. So I wanted to, you know, hint at it without, you know, where you're reading through 20 pages of history of nonfiction.
2: <laughs> right now that is, you're, you're right. That is always a struggle whenever you want to make the environment real enough that it's solid, uh, but at the same time, not overwhelm the reader. And and there's also the other part of that too, which I think is sometimes when you, the the less you, you make things descriptive, the more your reader kind of buys in and fills in the blanks, and then it kind of becomes their setting as well.
5: Exactly. Because you had 13,000 people die in a one-year time, and you've had, you had 32,000 people in a 26-acre situation, and people were insane. They didn't have clothes a lot of times. They didn't have shelters. They're burrowing in the ground for for a place to live. The ground's completely crawling with maggots. I mean, it's just, it was absolutely horrific, and be able to describe that in detail and just imagine – the smell, because the spring was polluted by latrines. You're right by a swamp, and Georgia in the summertime is a miserable place to be.
2: Yeah, that sounds like true horror to me. Just being in that situation.
5: That's yeah. I don't think I could have made it. I don't. I, I've seen these guys in history, and they're they're a lot tougher than me. I mean, I was in the military, but I can't imagine going through something like the Civil War or World War Two. my hats off to the survivors. They they're a lot tougher than I ever will be.
2: Oh yeah. It was a totally different time. People were built of stronger stuff back then. I know that for sure.
5: Yeah, I mean, we, we fought when we don't have AC or the cable goes out. <laughs> I can't imagine being <laughs> in Andersonville. <laughs> right.
2: So how many drafts did, did this story take for you to get it to the form that, that we ended up with uh, for the episode?
5: I don't know. I don't keep count, but I do a lot of drafts. It's kind of like peeling an onion. I do layer after layer after layer. Like the first draft, I'm doing just putting words on paper. I don't look at, you know, spelling or mistakes. I'm just trying to get the, the word countdown started, too. My wife always wants to read the first couple drafts. I'm like, no. So a minimum <laughs> four or five drafts of anything I write because I don't worry about the final polish until I'm, I'm satisfied with the story. I'm satisfied with the plot element and the twist. And then I go back for the little things and, you know, fill in the little details because it's kind of like I just rushed through the story the first time in a dead sprint.
2: Yeah, it's almost like trying to keep up with, with the dictation or or the scenes that you're seeing playing out before you lose it.
5: Exactly. You know, because a lot of people get stuck, especially in longer works like novels, they get stuck in the middle. And what, what it is is because they're backing up trying to polish and That'll that'll stop, stop you dead cold. I'm like, just keep getting words down. Write 10 pages, even if it's garbage and you throw it away later. Get your 10 pages down. Don't ever back up on a story until you're finished with it.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, what came first for you with this story? I guess it was probably the setting. I, I, I'm I'm thinking that the characters kind of came to you in a certain way as well.
5: Yeah, I didn't I didn't actually write this until I got down here living in Florida, which is why you you know I got the UCF students in there, the University of Central Florida. But I I had been toying about it at the back of my my head, and I, when I was still in Georgia, I started researching Andersonville. And the more I read about it, I said somebody going to do something with this. I said we need to make a movie about it, which they eventually did. It was either a movie or mini series they did on it. But it was like they were so much, you know. Where you, the prisoners are coming in, and getting robbed by the Andersonville Raiders, which are four or five hundred men led by a group of six, and they're being terrorized by their own people. And this has to be a story. People got to know about this and just to realize this is part of history because it's not in history. You don't see this in high school or college, Maybe and it's right. something you know you don't want to cover over. You know the horrors of history. I mean, we can't apologize for them now, and we can't point our fingers at people because it's in the past, but I think you've got to, you know, acknowledge it to keep history alive and realize this this was a moment in our, in our, in a part of this country. Yeah, and
2: and I think it's also important that we don't repeat the same mistakes. I mean, that's kind of what the old saying is, the, those that don't, don't understand the past are doomed to repeat the mistakes, so.
5: Exactly. I mean, we had, you know, you had Andersonville, which was horrific. We had the Trail of Tears, which was a death march for the Native Americans. We had insane asylums where people were treated horrible. We had orphanages, which were bad. These are all terrible things. And luckily, a lot of those things are in the past and don't exist anymore. But we shouldn't forget about them. We should know that they're there. And that's how we do it with stories. I mean, I'm not going to you know, hit people over the head with a non fiction, but if I slip a little bit into a fictional story, I'm educating people whether they like it or not. It's just traditional storytelling.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that's that's what I really love about storytelling is it's you make the story interesting, you make it something that's compelling and that people are entertained by and you get the opportunity to kind of pass a message along in the process. And, you know, that's that's the thing about storytelling being around forever is is it's kind of how we we speak to our future, and it's how we understand our past and, and it's, it's important that we do that
5: It's exactly I mean we're writers. I mean we're kind of the observers on what's going on around us. It's our job to record history even through the stories that we write, even if they're fiction stories, whether they're science fiction or fantasy they're all they all reflect on the era we live in. I mean, you look at Mark Twain. I mean, you know, people uh, argue about his use of words and stuff. I said, but he's describing that's how it was when he was alive. Yeah, he's not trying to be racist. That's just how it was. Yes, so his stories capture that moment in our time that you can learn from him.
2: Right. Something that stuck with me is is how offended people get by. Those loaded terms and everything, but that's how it was then. And and you can't forget that you can't just brush that under the rug and pretend it never happened because it makes you feel comfortable. It's good to make be made to feel uncomfortable at times because otherwise (laughs) we, we repeat the same things.
5: Exactly. I mean, we, you know, as as a species, we need to have dialogue. I mean, stifling dialogue and censoring is just as bad as, you know, the other way of, you know, having the bad stuff. I mean, we need need to open dialogue. People need to realize that. I mean, you don't want to deliberately put stuff in stories that, you know, is going to offend people. But when you read historic uh, accounts, it's like, okay, this is how it was back then. Let's not act like it didn't happen. Just learn from
2: the past. Absolutely. So what attracts you to writing horror and speculative fiction? Because obviously that's, that's, that's kind of your, your, your bread and butter. What pulls you into that genre?
5: Well, I've done everything from children's books to fantasy. I've ghostwritten science fiction. I've done martial arts articles. And it's one thing to have somebody say, I really like your story. It's another thing to have that, a person come up to you and say, look, your story scared the crap out of me, and I had to sleep with the lights on. And that's like the best compliment you can get. If you can terrify somebody or, you know, something like that where they were nervous and you're looking over their shoulder, that's wonderful. Yeah. And if I can do that with, the, with the other people and still put some teachings in there, I mean, I've got books that are being used in colleges, grade schools, and even uh, a correctional facility because – a lot of these kids in the youthful offender program will read my books and then never read a book in their life and they'll read them because it has horrific acts. I've got monsters attacking people, but then I've got the, the teaching elements like mm-hmm. the native American culture and the respect to land, respect your elders. Yeah. So they're learning something whether they like it or not. So I can do it with horror and I, I can have fun scaring, scaring the Jesus out of people.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think that that's, that's absolutely correct. I mean, it's, it, what, what horror really does is it, it kind of pulls people out of their comfort zone. Uh, it shows them that you don't have control over everything, that bad things sometimes happen, and it gives you the opportunity to kind of say, okay, here's how we deal with that. Um, and that's
5: Exactly. You take an average person, average family, and their classic story is good versus evil. I mean, it's how the person responds. I mean, it's all about the family. It's all about the person in the story. The You know, the, the monster, the beast, the ghost is a catalyst. See how these people are going to react to it. Yep.
2: Yeah. It's the test that matters. It's how they react, how they react that really proves who they are. And giving them that ability to go through that gives your reader the ability to go through that as well. So that's really cool.
5: Exactly. I mean, The Walking Dead, the most popular show on TV, or at least it was, is still up there. I mean, but it's not about the zombies. It never was about the zombies. It's about the people and how they react to the situation and how they get along. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a big study in, in humanity. Um, and I think that this season, it's even more that because you see all these folks that have been out on the road and surviving and, and put in these ter- horrific situations where they've had to make really uncomfortable, um, sometimes very questionable decisions. And when you try to put them back into society, you're going to have some issues. And, and that's kind of what the exploration has been so far this season, uh, which has kind of, for me at least, refreshed it and made it more interesting than it's been. Yeah, they're
5: basically they're in a war situation. I mean, it's the same, same thing as we're sending our poor soldiers over to the Middle East three and four consecutive tours, and these 18-year-olds are seeing absolutely horrific things and coming back and having mental problems, and we're wondering why. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we'd all be screwed up in that
2: situation. Absolutely. So one of the things that we always like to talk about, because we have so many listeners that um, are writers themselves or aspiring writers, so I always like to kind of ask a few questions that – kind of delve into what the writing routines and rituals are for the author that we're featuring. So that's really kind of my question is what routines or favorite rituals do you have that get you into the right mindset for sitting down and writing and, and pulling a story from your mind?
5: I do before I ever sit down and write write on paper or on the computer, I'll do a lot of walking around, a lot of thinking things through. And maybe you know, my wife says it's called goofing off when I'm laying on the couch. But no, I'm thinking the story in my head before I ever sit down. And when I do sit down, especially with the longer work, I'll i give myself a page count. I'll be like, uh, for a novel it's ten pages a day. And it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if they're good pages, bad pages, ten pages. And if I, if I write them in the morning and I knock them out in two hours, I'm done for the day. I, I stop. If, you know, if I have to sit there for 12 hours, get those 10 pages, and I sit there for 12 hours. So it's a real incentive. And then I just never work on, on Saturday and Sunday. I take the weekend off. Mm. So I consider it a, you know, a regular job, Monday through
2: Friday. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, and you've you've been working on a lot of different stuff. Uh one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you about, because I know that you're, you're working with comics. I mean, you have in the past as well, but um, you, you've had some some really uh, big blips on the radar there in terms of comics. How does writing a comic uh, differ from writing a short story or writing a novel or or other stuff that you've worked on in the past? Well, c-
5: comics formatting is a lot more difficult. I mean, you're you're dealing with uh, you know a twenty page story. You gotta have a, a page turner at the end of every page pretty much to make them t- turn the page to the next. You're dealing with from f- like four to six panels, uh, less, uh, less panels if you're a lot of action. So you gotta give the artist something. Uh, whereas a novel or a short story is more freestyle. You're not worried about, you're not hemmed in with, with that situation. Whereas in comic and scripts, you gotta be very, very much aware of, you know, where everything is going, the location. Like, if you're doing a 20-page comic and the editor tells you, oh, change this panel on page two, well, that pretty much just messed up page three, four, five, and six. got to work <laughs> everything around it. So it's all about, you know, the formatting on a comic to get it right. I mean, you've still got to tell a story, but you've got to remember the limits that you're allowed.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. You do actually kind of have to have a punchline at the end of every page. Um, whereas in, in writing you, you, you don't or I mean, I guess you could, but I think that would be really tough to do because when you're writing, you never know what word is going to end a page, uh, with a comic, you have a very confined space to do that in. Uh, so it almost becomes natural to have to do that, huh?
5: Exactly. I mean, you know, and you have like your comics, you only have the title pages and a certain number of pages. You got to remember what, what you're going to have if you have a double page spread and, you know, you, there, it, it's the cost in the back of your head. I mean, okay, we am going to the bottom of this page. i got to have this little thing to make you turn to the next page or they're going to complain about it. Whereas when well, I'm doing a short story a novel, I'm not worried about any of that stuff. I'm doing you know, a chapter and, okay, if there's a cliffhanger at that chapter, fine, at the end of it, you know. But i got, you know, 30 pages to worry about having a cliffhanger. I'm not doing it every single page to make you want to turn to the next page like in a comic. Right. <laughs>
2: So what's it like to work with that artist? I mean, I think that that would, that must, I mean, I've worked with a lot of artists for the, the covers for the wicked library when we were doing custom, custom, uh, uh, covers for each episode. And, um, obviously just worked on a book cover with, with an, with an artist and illustrations for inside the book. So for me, it's, it's kind of a really cool experience because I'm not, I, I can't draw. Um, so whenever I write something or create something and then somebody else comes in behind and, and makes it visual. I'm always blown away by that. Do you kind of have the same experience with the comics?
5: Exactly. I mean, I, uh, Matt Mirhoff, who did I just did a Poison Ivy comic, Then he did an amazing job on the artwork. Of course, when I'm writing a comic, you know, for like a one page, com- one page of the comic, I might have several pages of description to tell him what I want in the illustrations. Mm-hmm. And he really nailed it. I mean, it is a beautiful artwork. And it goes through that part. You see the black and white, then the guy comes in and does the coloring and it's just amazing and they just they blew me away. I mean, they really did. They they put everything I wanted in there plus more because I left a lot of it open where I, I didn't want to, you know, confine the artist. Yeah. I wanted to be able to work with them, get them excited about the story too.
2: That's that to me is the best part. Is like whenever you you kinda give them a a, a little gentle nudge in a certain direction and they come back with something completely out of the ordinary, something that you weren't even expecting, but you, when you see it, you're like, ah, that's exactly what this needed to be.
5: Yeah, just for, you know, you're talking about how I tie stuff in, uh, I did the Poison Ivy story I did, was called Silent Screams, and it starts out on a lonely road in, in South Georgia, so I'm, I'm putting it on the same area sealed with a kiss, and mm-hmm. the same area as where Andersonville is for Last Man in Line. I said, I just love this, because I remember those, those lonely roads and everything covered by kudzu. I got a thing about kudzu, I said, well, what's, DC character would fit best in this location. I'm like poison ivy because yeah. she has control over plants. It would be a perfect element for her.
2: Oh, that's cool. That is cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's really fun to work with the artist. So I was curious, kind of, what your experience has been. And and you uh you had a really cool cover. I had one of your uh, pre-release versions of Tribal Screams. I haven't seen the cover for the the final version. Is did it end up similar, or did you go in a different direction with it? Same artwork.
5: Uh, okay. it, uh The lettering is a little bit different because uh, Independent Legions uh, publishing, which is a company based out of Italy. They wanted to do it, and I said, well, look, i got to keep the Michael Broom uh, cover on it. And I'm glad it was picked up by a publisher and they have a larger distribution where mine were kind of like, you know, advanced, co- advanced reading copies. I just did a, a, like a box of them, a small amount. But Michael Broom is a, uh, is a Hollywood uh, creature effects artist. He's worked on The Walking Dead. He's worked on Wolverine. He's worked on The Crazies. He, he is an amazing artist. And the, Give me this cover on Tribal Stream. blew me away. Of course, uh, coffee shop of horrors did a uh, Al going back uh, tribal screams roasted chestnut flavored coffee <laughs> with right. the same artwork.
2: That's so awesome. I've got this
5: amazing shape shifting you know coyote skull creature on the front of it. And it, it, it is incredible. So yeah. I lo- it's like the best cover I've ever had on a book.
2: It's beautiful. I love it. I actually, I mean, I have it in my hands obviously right now because um, I wanted to ask you what it's like to take all these stories that have appeared in various locations and kind of finally bring them all together in one place
5: it was actually a lot of work I had nothing on computer my wife was like bugging me she said you need to do this i'm like hon i have nothing on this nothing on computer <laughs> everything you know you know old computers that had crashed so i had to sit there and retype every single story you know look at the anthologies and in, in front of me and type the entire thing all over again
2: so what was uh, the temptation? It was a lot of work. <laughs> what was the temptation to to change things? Did you did you do any revising as you were typing these?
5: No, I I I thought about it, but that wouldn't be fair to my readers. Yeah. I wanted to present the stories as they were originally published cuz all the anthologies they are in are pretty much out of print. You can't find them. And people are saying, "Well, what about your short stories? What about the, you know, Grass Cancer was an Nebula Award nominee. Oh, yeah. We want to read it." I said, well, let me give you the original stories as they were. And I didn't change any of them.
2: Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, I I, I just figured that might have been a temptation as you're going through. Oh, I could change this. This isn't quite how I write anymore. <laughs>
5: <laughs> it, it was, uh, you know, because, you know, you you, you get better as time goes by. And I'm looking at some of the stories that were at the beginning of my career. I like, oh, that line could be so much better. But I'm like, no, no. I present it <laughs> like with, with any of the flaws that I had at that time of my writing career.
2: Well, k- well, kudos to you for having the strength to do that, because I think that would be extremely tough to go through older stuff and-, and have to keep it the way that it was. So that's really cool that you were able to do that.
5: Well, I can get away with it. I got a great cover of the book. I mean, yeah. they'll forgive me for the cover.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, and you got a, and you got a great – you got some great blurbs on the back, too. You know, you got to, Neil Gaiman, my favorite quote about you. "All going back as a hell of a writer. It's so simple. It's one sentence, but, hey, it's Neil Gaiman, first of all. And second of all, what a great quote.
5: Game Gaiman's a sweetheart. He's one of the nicest people in the world. I was so tickled when he gave me that. I said, oh, yeah, please. You know, He actually wrote me a lot. When I was trying for the, the DC's uh, Talent Development Workshop, You know, they said you have a letter of recommendation to, when they were picking writers. And I asked Gaiman if he would write me a letter of recommendation. That was the beginning of the letter. I said, look, can I use this? And I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> I said, well, that's the best quote ever. And to get the one from George and Merrill, because, George I've known for 20 years, and we came so close to turning a couple of my books into movies he wanted to direct. And we negotiating for Evil Whispers uh, with Millennium Films and a couple of other companies, and the writer's strike in Hollywood hit and killed the deal. So all those years I've known George, I finally was like – just like the last year of his life, I said, George, I said, can I get a quote from you? I said, you know what, you've read all my books, you like my stuff, you wanted to turn crowd and evil whispers both in the movies. I said, would you give me a quote? And he gave me a quote, and I am so tickled to have it because he's such a wonderful person.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, you have some you have some great folks on here that uh, that were kind enough to give you some some really nice quotes. So that's that's awesome. Terry Brooks too. I mean, you know, Terry's who, a
5: good guy. Who, I'm, who I'm, I'm most... lucky. I've, I've met a lot of wonderful writers, and you know, they they are amazing talents, and they have a quote from them. I'm just happy they let me in the same room with these guys.
2: <laughs> and you know. I met Gaiman once, and 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 uh, I was kind of taken by that too. Is like you 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 put them on this pedestal because they are who they are, uh, but you get to the point where you realize, you know, hey, they realize what it was like and how hard it was to get started in the business. They're they're they love to help people out, um, and that's you know Gaiman's been on the show before. We had a story of his on, so that was one of the reasons why we had him on. Is you know his agent said, well. This kind of fits his theme. He he likes to help writers get noticed, and you know, since you're working with a lot of independent writers, having him on the show is helpful to them. He'd love to give you a story. So,
5: uh, actually, I was sitting there in the in the parking lot today, reading Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman, and, and oh, his yeah. writing is amazing. I, I will never in my life be as good as writers. he is. I mean, he is a true writer's writer. He's he's like Ray Bradbury. It's it's poetry what comes out of his out of his brain. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I would probably I would probably differ with that. I think that uh, I, I've read some of your stuff, obviously, and and I've I've thought that you have quite a bit of talent uh, t- to tell a story and to make a story real, which is the hardest part.
5: Well, people like Gaiman, I, I appreciate the compliment, but you know, I'll go back with people like Gaiman or Andre Norton or something. I mean, you know, you sit there and you think, well, there's no way these people can be a writer. or Wrote this book I've read until they open their mouth and start talking, and they're mm. just a. a thought of knowledge I mean even with Harlan Ellison it's the same way oh, yeah. guy or like there's no way and he's just he's a wonderful person despite his you know reputation <laughs> and you're sitting there and you just listen to these stories they have you yeah. know the old Hollywood stories or the old writing stories or how it was back in the pulp days and you sit there in absolute awe just listen to these people they're you know it's fascinating yeah yeah, no, I, I picture Harleston in heaven right now, having arguments with God. I just, you know, <laughs> I just see that image in my mind with
2: him. <laughs> That'd be a great debate. <laughs> so, since we're talking about so many writers and so many storytellers, what is a, a book or a story that you've read that kind of changed the way that you looked at the world or or your place in it?
0: Oh, there's so
5: many. I mean, I, I grew up in a small town. I was actually in the country. I mean, we lived on five acres in a mobile home kind of situation, you know, all woods, no playmates, no friends for miles. So books were my lifesavers. I mean, I remember in grade school reading like a, the Ghost of Dibble Hollow from the Scholastic Book Club, and it was a Revolutionary War ghost story. So that hooked me on ghost stories in history. Hmm. I remember coming across Andre Norton's uh uh book, uh, Starman's Song, which I think was called Daybreak 2250 AD, and it was a picture of a man with a large cat on a raft going past his, uh, you know, destroyed city. So it opened my mind to the whole science fiction and fantasy genres. And then you got Ray Bradbury, who was like a poet, and he's from the Midwest, so I could relate to all his stuff, and he could tell a story about tennis shoes and make it fascinating. Huh. So yeah, there's so many that inspire me, you know. If it wasn't for these people, I wouldn't have started writing. I Basically, I started writing when I was very young to try to create what they were doing to imitate them because I was having such enjoyment reading their stuff. I wanted to create my own stories for people.
2: Yeah. No, I think that's how we all start is, you know, we, we, we sound like somebody else at first because we want to be them. And then over time, if you keep doing it and you stick with it, eventually you get your own voice. But yeah, there's some some really great names that you've listed in there, and you know Bradbury is one of my favorites, and we don't we don't talk about him a lot on the show, but he comes up when I when I talk to writers as you know writers tend to appreciate him so much because he he was such a a craftsman at at storytelling and uh, just the it seemed effortless. I mean, I'm sure it took a lot of work for stories to come out the way that they did, but they felt effortless when you read them, you know.
5: He's another one of these guys. I saw him at the 1986 World Science Fiction Convention in Atlanta. And he's another one of his presidents, gets up on stage, and you're like, oh, this is a real writer because you're in awe of the stories he can tell. <laughs> Not just what he puts on paper, but his whole life is an yeah. amazing story.
2: Yeah, that's, yeah, there's, it, it's, and it's good that we have those, those people that we can refer back to the inspiration. Um,
5: and their stuff still holds up today. I was a big yeah. fan also of Edgar Rice Burroughs, of Giant oh, Carter yeah. Mars, and the Inner Earth series. And this guy wrote those books in 1912 Princess of Mars and it still holds up today and it's still amazing science fiction.
2: Yeah, it's it's really cool. I mean, that's one of the things when I started really getting into stories and storytelling, even traditional oral storytelling is just you know, it it all still is relevant. It all still matters and as a modern writer, there's so much you can learn by going back to these these old oral traditions and you know, these old stories that were written hundreds of years ago that they still say something. They still have meaning.
5: Yeah, you know, I mean, times change, but the, the, the heart of the story always the same. I mean, you've got, you know, human struggle. I mean, you know, survival, struggle. We all have the people from 200 years ago have the same, you know, wants, desires we have today. You know, you know, want to carry your family. You want to live in safety. It, you know, it still holds up.
2: Yeah, it's a long conversation. And, and, you know, each of us kind of as writers and as storytellers, we have our own little place in that to to kind of keep that conversation going.
0: Yeah, it's kind
5: of like God gave us a gift, you know, and I I tell everybody creativity is a gift, but it's a curse because every writer I know has so much problems in their life and they have health problems, they have financial problems, they have difficulties. But if we didn't have those things, we wouldn't have nothing to write about. I mean, if we never had been hungry or felt hunger, we wouldn't be able to relate to people who are starving. If we never felt suffering, we wouldn't be able to write about suffering. So we're given these hardships along with that gift of creativity, because it's like, you know, if there is a God up here, he's like, here, here's a gift. I wanna make you creative, but you're gonna suffer. So you can (laughs) share this with other people so they, there'll be somebody reading it and be like, "Oh, he understands what I'm going through."
2: Right, right. Yeah, to give somebody else that ray of hope. Absolutely. Exactly. So, what does a good story have to do to scare you? You mentioned so many great storytellers and writers. Do you have you found that there's something about stories that the the, the kind of that special sauce that for you makes the story kind of creepy or scary?
5: Creepy little girls in front of elevators really get to me. <laughs>
2: Oh, well, that's a thank you very much. Uh, that made my day.
5: <laughs> I mean, you know, ghost stories are always wonderful. I mean, I've always been fascinated. I, I don't scare easily in reading, although when I first started writing stuff, I, I like I said, we owned a, a restaurant bar in Georgia, and it was on an old street. And it was a very scary place. You knew it was haunted, and I wrote in the pool room at 3 in the morning. I tell my family, I say, please don't sneak up behind me when I'm writing because I will wet myself. But, yeah, you know, there's. I love that the scarier they're better. I mean, I, I really love supernatural scares. I don't like reading uh, slasher type stories or mm-hmm. anything that I can see on CNN. I mean, I love ghost stories. I love werewolves. I love vampires. I love monsters. I'm a monster kid at heart. Anything based on folklore. I, I really I'm fascinated by the different uh, horrific stories from around the world. Vampire stories, ghost stories out of Asia. You know, yeah. I, I don't get scared. but I do enjoy them. I, I like. They're like roller coaster rides to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't I don't often do this because obviously this is these interviews are about you as the author and, and folks kind of learning about you. But you did write the foreword for the collection that we have coming out, uh, which is we have uh, our other show, The Lift with Victoria, that uh, we kind of have been ha- worked with so many great writers since the show started and we've taken those, those stories and converted them into audio format as, as a audio drama. Um, But we finally got to the point where we're like, you know what? I think what the the readers might enjoy or their listeners might enjoy is something that they can actually read. So we had kind of handpicked some of these authors and and brought them all together and said, okay, go wild, do what you want to do. All new stories. Nobody's ever heard them before. Go longer than we usually go because obviously there's a lot of work that goes into producing audio. So we kind of have limited the length of the stories, but uh, for the collection that kind of went out the window. Um, And I I was really grateful that you were willing to read the, the entire collection and write a nice forward for the story. Um, And uh, yeah, I, I, wanted to take an opportunity to say thank it's, you for It's a that. great,
5: great collection. I mean, the lifts is fascinating. I, I really think Netflix needs to pick up your, your stories in the for or an anthology for video. I mean, because there's so much potential. I mean, you got this abandoned building with endless hallways, and each room's a different story. You know, and it, it just and this, it's great. And this little creepy girl <laughs> introducing all this. I love Victoria. I want to see more with her. Yeah. I mean, she's a story unto herself. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's we. When we go through the um through the 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 podcast through the uh, the audio drama, Cindy and I have written kind of like her core stories. Um, so there there are some episodes that are kind of focused on her and her history and how she ended up there, and you know what her future direction is. And we start to explore, you know, her father's past and her mother's past and her little brother and and kind of how that all ties together in the world. And it's it's been a lot of fun to world build that. Um, she came to me a long time ago. She was kind of one of the first elements that came to me whenever I wanted to learn how to tell stories. And eventually it got to the point where she pretty much demanded that she had her own vehicle, her own show. Um, and the thing that really means something to me is when I go through and I read the reviews on iTunes and uh, other places, the thing that surprises me the most is that so many people have been. Helped by her, where they say, you know, it helped me get through this trauma, or it made me reevaluate this. There's just so many reviews that are a personal connection to her, um, and and that's as a writer, one of the most humbling things that I think you can get.
5: Yeah, that's that's, that's always good. What's amazing when somebody comes up and says, "Hey, you know, you I, I spoke to you three years ago, or you, I read this story by, by you, and you know, I, I find it fascinating, and you've helped my through me through a rough time." Yeah. I had a gentleman write me for. Uh, my story, Shaman Moon, which is – mm. it's actually a novel. It's in the collection the essential world of darkness and ties in the white wolf's role playing games. And this guy wrote me and said, "Why well, I, I took this paragraph from your story, and I put it above my bed. And every day when I got up, I would read this paragraph out loud. And it helped me turn my life. And my brother saw it, and he copied it down and put it above his bed and read it every day. And I was so humbled and so honored by that. Hmm. But like I tell my wife, I don't remember writing the paragraph because I've written so much. <laughs> I mean it's in there. I'm sure I wrote it, yeah. But and I, I found it, and I know I wrote it. But it's like you know, it's just one of those things like writing is a gift. I was lucky enough to be the conduit that just came through, and it, it went out there and helped somebody. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's, that's the special thing is whenever something – and I, I kind of feel the same way. It's almost like something is working through you uh, to create this or to, uh, to pass that message along. I, I never like to take 100% credit for it because it's – well, you know how it is. When you're writing something, you feel inspired. You're, you're getting pieces from all these different elements of your life. And if you're lucky, you get something from somewhere else as well.
5: Exactly. I wrote Grass Dancer, which was a Nebula Award nominee. And one night I sat down. It was the only story I ever sat down and wrote at one sitting. And I got up and I said, I knew I had something special. And I read it to my mother and she cried. Yeah. I said, OK, this is a keeper. And I've read it in front of 600 people in Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, watched every single one in the room cry. And I know what at exact moment they are going to start. Tears are going to form. And I love reading this mm-hmm. story. I mean, it's a Vietnam powwow story about the love of two brothers And I led a lady out to the powwow, which inspired this story. And a woman read read the story, and she had been a nurse in Vietnam, and her Mm fiancé over there had been killed. And she would read, and she cried, and she read, and she cried, and she she read, and cried. And when she got done, she gave me a big hug and said it was the best medicine she ever had, and she walked off. Oh, man. So that was worthwhile right there. That moment, the whole story of doing that was for that moment. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and so listeners know that story is in this collection, um, Tribal Screams, and I think everybody should grab it because there's so many so many great stories in here. I mean, there is a thematic element that kind of runs through it uh, be- because it's your writing, but they're all so unique in their own way, um, and, and they all kind of have a different message. And I, I really enjoyed uh, reading the collection and, uh, like I said, getting an opportunity to do so many of these, these things for the Wicked Library has been really cool. So I really appreciate you trusting us with that stuff.
5: Well, I love the fact you guys are doing this because I love the Wicked Library. And I, I grew up when I was a kid listening to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, mm-hmm. like under the covers when I was supposed to be sleeping in school the next day. And uh, the Wicked Library reminds me so much of those radio dramas from back in the day in my childhood, yeah. which caused me to be sleepy in many a class the next day, but I wouldn't miss any of them.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, I I had a a a deep obsession with uh, old time radio for a long period of time whenever I was growing up as well. So, uh, my grandmother kind of introduced me to it, and I was like, "Oh my god, look at all this stuff that there is!" And you know, all all my all my peers, I grew up in the '80s, so all my peers are you know into Miami Vice and all this other stuff, and I'm listening to old time radio uh, on on cassette tape and borrowing (laughs) from the library. (laughs)
5: It's the one tie I had with my grandmother. I had a grandmother, and she you know, she had all kinds of you know, mental issues. I mean, she was a hoarder, and she used to, you know, schizophrenia mm. and everything else. But the, what we had in common is she would stay up and listen to that show every night. We would discuss it the next day. And she, she was a writer, so I guess it's one of my talent from her. She was a poet. Mm. So it was just wonderful, like I said, to my grandmother, having those moments the next morning talking about that show. So we had that link, that bond, that she didn't have with any of the other family members.
2: That's really cool, yeah to have that connection with my, my grandma was, uh, a storyteller. She would, t- I mean, she wasn't professional or anything, but she used to tell me these great stories about, uh, growing up on the farm and all her brothers and sisters. And, you know, she would have a couple of stories that she would retell and tell for me because I'd always ask for them, you know? So I was like, yeah, tell, tell me the one about the chicken hawk. Tell me the one about the, you know, tell me the, the, the one about the rooster, you know? The, so there were these stories that, You know, uh, just life on the farm type of thing, which was so far removed from where I was living in the suburbs. But it was so cool to, you know, hear those 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 experiences.
5: My grandmother used to tell me about the the screams and murders in the woods behind her house at night. I mean, she lived on the same property as us. I know it wasn't happening, but to her it was real. But it was fascinating because it helped feed a, a child's imagination for everything scary. Oh, yeah. You tell about all the murders and the screams and the bloody things that were in the mobsters that were moving around at night. and you know, <laughs> it kind of worked its way in a lot of my stories.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You can certainly see that. So where can listeners find more of your work? There's been a ton of stuff going on. You mentioned uh, the Poison Ivy story, but that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg, right?
5: tip of an iceberg. I've got the the tribal screams just came out in uh, both paperback and and Kindle on Amazon uh, next month. uh, Well, actually, a couple of months ago, they rescheduled uh, February. My newest novel, Coyote Rage, should be out. It should be available also on Amazon and other booksellers. I've got uh, the same companies reissuing a lot of my earlier books like Croto, which is the Bram Stoker award winners coming out around the end of the year.
2: Oh, i nice. got a lot of
5: stuff hitting right behind you with the fantastic covers. They're all coming out at the same time. That's
2: awesome. That's awesome. So what are you working on now with all this stuff coming off? I know you like to keep busy. Have you got any new projects you're working on?
5: I got so many crazy things going on right now. I'm working on. I've got a standalone novel that I'm working on. That I've had it as a screenplay. I keep jumping back and forth. I got it done as a screenplay. Now I'm gonna want to go back and novelize it. I'm working on new comics. I've got it. Coyote Rage is book one in a trilogy. So I got to do book two and three, and you know, I haven't even done the outlines yet. So it's hitting in February, so I need to get my little rear end and gear and get some of <laughs> this stuff done. So yeah, it's pretty much I'm doing a ton of stuff at one time, and I've got a lot of requests for stories and things like that right now. So this is definitely the busy season.
2: Yeah, it's it's a fun time of year, but yeah, it it, it does wear you out. I know I'm. Uh, before we started recording today, we had talked a little bit about I'm, I'm going over to uh, to Europe for. My sister having a baby. So I'm trying to get not only do I have all this stuff for October because it's October, but I also have trying to get everything done kind of for the rest of the year so that while I'm away, I don't have to worry about it. And it's just I feel for you. (laughs) you got a lot more on your plate than I do.
5: Well, I got a meeting tomorrow at noon with a guy. They want me to be in a, in a horror film and shoot the trailer. And I keep telling my wife, look, I'm getting too over to stuff. And there's a lot of fight scenes and my fight scene days are over. <laughs> She's like, you should do it. I'm like, you know, I don't heal up as good, babe. I'm 59, you know. Have you read the script? And I was supposed to meet with them. I'm like, look, guys, I'll do whatever you want because you're friends. And I know you guys. But do you really want me? Because I'll probably die within the first couple of days of oh. shooting.
2: <laughs> well, we don't want that. That, that can't happen. <laughs>
5: But to be in a horror film, it's like, yeah, okay. That one side says, "I'll do anything to be in a horror film. I'd love it." You know, the other time is running around in the woods and fighting stuff and <laughs> com- combat. Yeah, yeah, I won't last a week.
2: <laughs> yeah, hey, well, you know, with CGI nowadays, they can they can make yeah. all that work, right? That yeah, make
5: me younger too. It's like <laughs> make right. me look good on camera, please. Take <laughs> off twenty pounds and make me about twenty years younger.
2: There you go. There you go. <laughs> So, what's the best way for listeners and and people who are fans of your work to reach out and and interact with you?
5: Uh, well, I'm at the website. Um, mm-hmm. they, can, they can look at my list of stuff on the website, which is algoingback dot com. I do. I am on Twitter until like, enough of the trolls run me off, kind of thing. <laughs> and I'm on Facebook, so I'm I'm, I'm out there. I'm pretty much at all the social media that everybody else is doing nowadays. It only took me. Years to get on Facebook, because they said my name wasn't real, and finally technology caught up, and I could send him a picture of my ID, my driver's license, and they're like, oh, it is real.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember that. So that, was, that was another uh, situation where I, I saw a comment from Mr. Gaiman on that, like, this is just ridiculous.
5: Yeah, it was funny because they gave a gave a page of Sasquatch. I said, "Well, I don't think Bigfoot has a driver's license, but they wouldn't give me one." But my agent was like, "Hey, it's real." And my wife was on there. my son was on there. and finally, I was like, "Oh yeah," I I, I didn't have a scanner, and they want me to scan stuff.
2: I said, "Wait a minute, can I just take a picture and send it to you." I'm
5: like, "Yeah, it'll work." So I had a page. Five minutes later.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, that's well,
5: Twitter. I'm oh, going back yes. uh, on Twitter. Because when I went on here, I was going to use Owl going back, but there was some woman on Twitter using my name. And I you know, I don't know whether to take it as a compliment or just think it's some crazy person, but <laughs> they were on Twitter using my name and following people I knew. So I'm like, okay, I guess that's a compliment.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the bane of Twitter these days is people that are pretending to be a celebrity and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It kind
5: of bugs you, but you can't get really upset about things nowadays. You're like, you know, it's like after I got on Facebook, there was somebody else who come along a couple of days later, and they were looking, using the name like John and Al, going back to their last name. I'm like, okay, is that? mean, he likes my work, or he's just a nut job. I don't know.
2: <laughs> it's always a, it's always an interesting quandary. Which is it? Are they a fan, or are they nuts, or maybe they're both?
5: That's why nobody knows where I live and even my yeah. relatives up north. I've, I've got a P.O. box in another town, another city than where I live. And they go, oh, well, we'll come down to visit you. We know you're in Central Florida. You're <laughs> near Disney. I said, find it. You know my address. Yeah, we just you know, get a P.O. box in the town where you live in. And yeah. there's a reason for that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you just meet everybody at Disney,
0: all right?
5: I do. I, I'll meet them at restaurants. I think in, I've been living in this house since 91. I think I can count on one hand the number of people I've ever had in my house.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, that makes sense. It's a crazy world out there. It is a crazy world. Well, Things...
5: My granddaughter lived with me for three years, and she had a lot of her friends in, but it was always funny because their friends would come in with their, their parents, and they would tiptoe in the house. they got the hearse in the driveway and a full-size cat <laughs> in the living room, and they would tiptoe in with the weird guy's house, and they'd come back with a camera because they absolutely love it.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, hey, I wanted to thank you again for taking so much time to talk and, and again for letting us do your story so many times. Obviously, we'll, we'll look to do more in the future. And, uh, you know, if if the if your schedule permits and, and time allows, I'd, I'd love to have you, you know, write a story for Victoria sometime in the future, too, because uh, I know I know you, you kind of fell in love with her and the character and the story. And I think that's what we originally had talked about was I wanted to have you write a story and your schedule was just too crazy. So we said, well, let's do a forward at least.
5: If time permits, I'd love to, because that's one thing, when I was reading all the stories, I was like, man, I should have, I so wanted to have one in there, too, <laughs> because I really had fun with the stories, and enjoyed everybody's work, and I was kicking myself for not writing one.
2: Uh, well, it would be my great honor to have you, so, I, you know, that that offer is always open. Hopefully, we'll do really well with this first collection, and, you know, we'll have another one next year, so.
5: I'm excited to see the book come out. I think everybody's going to love it, I, as much as I did. I had a lot of fun with it.
2: I'm glad. I'm really glad. Well, again, thanks so much. I, I know I, we've been talking for a while, so I don't want to keep you on all night. I know you have a a phone that's a battery that's dying on you and all that fun stuff. So
5: <laughs> I, I'm hunched over the desk because I got to plugged <laughs> in on the floor here.
2: <laughs> yeah, not a comfortable position to be in. So I, I, I appreciate you taking the time, and you know, I, I hope you have a great Halloween. This will actually come out on Halloween, so yeah, hopefully oh, everybody so enjoys it.
5: That is that's definitely a treat to have it come out on Halloween. Yeah,
2: that's we, uh, we a lot of times would do like kind of a, a mishmash, hodgepodge collection of stories. And I thought, well, you know, we'll do that a little earlier. So, this well, as this airs, the, the episode that came out prior to that was a, a collection of, I think we had 16, 17, uh, flash fiction pieces. And, you know, Whoa, for, nice. yeah. And, and for the, the Halloween, uh, piece, I really wanted to kind of focus on this story because it's one of my favorites of yours. And, Hey, what better, what better compliment can you give to a horror writer than to say, hey, you have the Halloween episode?
5: I think that's awesome. I'm really <laughs> grateful for that. That is yeah. quite a compliment.
2: <laughs> well, thanks so much, Al. I really appreciate it. And, you know, you're welcome on the show and, and welcome in, in the world of The Lift anytime.
5: Well, thank you, and you keep up the great work. I love your show, and now you're doing books and stuff, and next thing you'll be in Hollywood soon. You know, (laughs) you're you're doing great stuff out
2: here. Oh, My head's going to get too big. I won't be able to fit through the door now, so (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much.
1: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to— Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
4: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. (gasps)